You're listening to the Tripping Off Podcast. Would you believe me if I told you that there was one remedy that can dramatically improve almost all mental health problems and even most physical ones? What if I said that it was not regulated by the FDA and that it was not only low cost, but free and it has no known side effects? Too good to be true? Well, I'm joined today by Dr. Kristen Casey, who has become pretty popular on the internet for sharing information about this wonder cure. She's an author, clinical psychologist, and has gained the notice of more than 130,000 followers on TikTok. Of course, we're talking about sleep. And Dr. Casey shares her research about sleep, why it's important, and why you're probably not getting the quality of sleep that you need. Let's trip off into the land of dreams together. This episode was brought to you by Murmur.co, M-I-R-M-I-R.co. If you are interested in learning more and taking courses from your favorite creators on social media, Murmur.co is the place to be. It combines community and e-learning in a place that allows and empowers creators to provide their audience with the content they want. There's no better place to have that personal experience and to support those creators that you care for and enjoy, then Murmur.co. And we thank them for being a sponsor of this episode. If you want any more information about me, Jesse Lyon, and Lyon Mental Health, you can always visit my website, www.lyonmentalhealth.com, L-Y-O-N, mentalhealth.com. It's where you can get your dreams personally interpreted by me. You can find the latest about the courses that I'm developing and working on, on how to interpret your own dreams. And you can send me a personal message if you want just a little bit more information and maybe I can help you out. But most importantly, thank you so much for being here and I'm glad that you joined us and we got to trip off together. Dr. Kristen Casey, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm excited to have you on. We've planned this for a little bit. Um, yeah. You are a PhD clinical psychologist from Kansas City, Missouri. That's where your private practice is. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, PsyD, but yes, I'm uh, located in Kansas City. Yep. I love it. And you have also kind of taken to the TikTok social media sphere and been making a lot of content as well. I'm always curious how somebody who's so in the academic field, you know, a doctor like yourself gets into the TikTok sort of, I mean, it's kind of a mess over here, but <laughs> you're in the middle of it. How did that start for you? Yeah, Jesse, thanks for having me on. And, and to be honest with you, it happened by accident. I downloaded TikTok in the midst of COVID. I was bored. Um, and I noticed there was a lot of creators like yourself who've been on there and decided to take a deep dive and see who would want to listen. And apparently people like what I have to say at certain points, you know, so. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, but we'll I, talk about haters in a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it gets it gets nasty out here. Let it me does, tell you. It does. Oh man. So yeah, it's, it seems like a lot of people turned to social media and to TikTok uh, during the pandemic in order to, I don't know, just, just to cope, in order to feel a sense of community. Did you find the community you were looking for there or um, did, you did know, you find what you were looking for? That's a good question. You know, I think initially I was really looking for a sense of, you know, getting information out there about mental health and especially sleep. Um, I noticed that there was not a lot of information out there about insomnia and people are struggling with it. Um, and I ended up stumbling upon a great community of people who are either, you know, struggling with mental health issues and sleep or, you know, clinicians and providers who are, you know, offering information too. So it made me feel less alone uh, when I found a community of people doing it too. 
because uh, initially I was like, wow, there's not many people on here who do mental health stuff. And then once I searched, I was like, actually, I was wrong. There's a lot of people yeah. on here, which is great. It's actually quite a few. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you you kind of started, I mean, you lately your content has been a lot about telehealth and about therapy and stuff like that, just kind of normalizing that process and normalizing seeing a therapist remotely. But in the beginning, you did do a lot of stuff about sleep. What was what was kind of the feedback there? What what were some of the the tips and tricks, the things that people really enjoyed from your content about sleep? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I did initially. It was exclusively about insomnia, um, about really what it means to get a good night's sleep. I think people are really searching for what is the amount of hours I should be getting. You know, what is my sleep window supposed to look like? So I did start there. Like you said, now I'm more into telehealth um, and really normalizing that experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, initially people were really, really hooked on, um, you know, what should I do to get a good night's sleep and why am I not sleeping? Like what is going on with my sleep and why can't I get a consolidated amount of hours of sleep? So mm. we really talked about sleep hygiene and dreams came up a lot, quite a bit. So yeah, well, that's, that's my side of the TikTok yep. stratosphere. <laughs> that's why I was so excited to chat with you. Cause yeah, I mean, I get questions about dreams all the time, you know? Yeah. Well, and so, well, so, so we'll go back and forth here a little bit. One of my questions is, you know, it feels like everyone and their brother says that they have insomnia. Is insomnia really that widespread? Is this, is this as big of an epidemic pandemic as people make it sound? That's a really good question. I think, I think it varies. I mean, I think it depends person to person, of course, but I do think that people are more likely to identify, you know, not having good sleep, lacking quality sleep now that there's more information out there. Um, in terms of insomnia as a diagnosis, I mean, it really does depend on the person, but normally it's, you know, difficulty with maintaining sleep, waking up earlier than your alarm and really struggling to get to sleep. Um, so people are really noticing that there's like a quality issue with their sleep. And I mean, there are so many factors, right? So there's, yeah. you know, um, factors that, you know, promote really bad sleep, which is like certain sleep hygiene factors. And then some people have this predisposition to bad sleep. Um, which could be hereditary. So like you said, I mean, it, it really depends, but I do think that there's more information out there and it, people are taking a lot of steps to look inward now and think about how sleep relates to their mental health. So yeah, sleep, sleep is crazy important. I've, yeah. I was reading this book, uh, Why We Sleep. Uh, That's such author, a good book. Yep. But have you read that one? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Changed my, my damn life. Let me tell you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was, you know, there's, there's the myth going around too, that you can get like six hours of sleep. As long as you get six hours of sleep, mm -hmm. you're okay. It's really not true. It's like seven to nine. If you're getting six, you're missing the last two. And I, I forget, I think it's the last two where the deep NREM sleep really happens. And those create yeah. those very solid neural pathways. That's when those are being created. Uh, I hope I'm, <laughs> I feel like I'm quoting it to the, uh, to the pastor here, the choir preaching, but yeah. uh, you would probably know better than me. No, you said it beautifully. I mean, I think it really alludes to sleep architecture, right? Where are we spending most of our time when we sleep? Mm. You know, is it in deep sleep? Is it in REM sleep? You know, what does our sleep architecture look like if we're waking up multiple times, right? And I mean, like you said, if we're getting six hours, I mean, I don't think there's any golden number. I mean, I think, yes, there should be more sleep than less in terms of, you know, if we really, really want to get quality sleep, um, you know, in terms of, how many hours? I do think it depends person to person too. I will add that qualifier in my clinical experience. I do know there are people out there. Yeah, they might function on six hours, but for them, it's solid six hours. Like they're not waking up really at all, or they're only having like one or two awakenings at night. But like you mentioned, if, if you're not getting a lot of hours, then I'd wonder how many sleep cycles you're actually going through at night. Mm. I like that term sleep architecture. 
That's real. Yeah. It's a catchy phrase. I like that. I took it from the cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia manual. It's not my own word. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's a good word. It's a good, yeah. you could have passed it off with me. Right. Right. Uh, why is it, why is it that sleep is so difficult to talk about? Like it's um not like difficult to talk about, but it's so boring. Like it feels like nobody wants to talk about it. It's crazy important. I mean, like, and I hope I'm not quoting this wrong either, but I was, I was reading that sleep is actually almost an even bigger indicator for cardiac problems than your food is. Oh gosh, I actually agree with that. Yeah, I that's mean, crazy I just, important, but nobody talks crazy. like it's so boring. Like, why is I it know, so boring? It, why do we not talk about it? I know it's a snooze fest, but at the same time, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, I had yes. to, <laughs> I had to add a silly joke in there, but yeah, I see sleep as like part of our life pie, right? If our if our sleep is off, it's likely that other areas of our life will will suffer. That could be mental health, mood. I mean, exercise, physical health, and like you said, I mean, cardiovascular stuff is really important, and I think. When we don't sleep well, there are issues, you know, with our physical health, our mental health and all of that. Um, I think it's one of those things that people don't really like to talk about because they might not know how to get a handle on it. We get anxious about the things that we can't control or that we perceive that we can't control. Ooh, that's interesting. So you wonder if not only is it, well, kind of maybe inherently boring because you're sleeping, right? right? right. Uh, you know, the topic will put you to sleep, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, but there's also kind of this inherent fear of things that we can't control. I really yeah. identify with that. That makes sense to me. Do you, totally. when, when you're working with people on their, on their sleep, and I don't know if that's a big part of your private practice, but does that topic come up a lot, that frustration of it being something outside of their control? Yeah. Yeah. It actually comes up more often than not. And maybe people aren't able to kind of verbalize that in the moment, but they are alluding to it. And here's an example. So when we okay. focus on sleep treatment, especially as it relates to just insomnia, I'm taking, there's, there's over 70 sleep disorders, but insomnia is one of the most prevalent. Um, we really focus on three things. We focus on sleep drive, which is the body's biological need for sleep. We focus on, um, you know, good sleep hygiene, which is, you know, really trying to get to sleep on certain times and things like that. Um, we also focus on circadian rhythm, which I know you touched on in a lot of your TikToks, circadian rhythm and all that, um, waking up the same time every day. Um, and then we also focus on arousal, which is anxiety, which is also focusing on the things that we can't control. I can't get to sleep on this at the same time every night. You know, I'm really worried that I'm not gonna be able to sleep. I'm up thinking about the fact that I want to sleep. You know, people are really concerned about it. Yeah. So it feel, there's a lot of factors that go into it and it feels outside of control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Yes. Do you, um, when it comes to sleep, um, I mean, there's, like you said, there's so many factors that go into it. What are your thoughts on, this is kind of a controversial topic, but mm -hmm. sleeping medication, like, mm -hmm. like Ambien and even like over the counter stuff like uh, melatonin, which is like super popular right now. Yeah. Um, I've heard some, I've heard some stuff saying that those things aren't great and can even be damaging because there's a huge difference between sleeping and sedation. And I've kind of been looking into that. What do you, what are your personal thoughts on medication? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a time and a place for medication, right? When we look at the research, we do notice that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is the first line treatment for just insomnia, right? Okay. When we think about long-term sleep issues, we really want to focus on behavioral mechanisms to make changes. When there's acute sleep issues, meaning like, you know, I travel to a different country and now I have jet lag and it's hard for me to get on back on a schedule or I'm dealing with a really stressful incident or something like that. A lot of times medication is helpful in the short term. Um, so I'm not really against medications. I'm not a prescriber by any means, um, but a lot mm -hmm. of the prescriber friends that I have, we talk a lot 
And a lot of our focus when we collaborate is how do we get this person off of these sleep medications so that they're able to function and not have that like hangover effect, even with over the, over the counter, like exogenous melatonin or uh, diphenhydramine, which is z and Benadryl pretty much, you know, how do we get to a point where we don't need that? And it's hard because people think that sometimes I need this to initiate sleep, but then you're not really getting into deep stages of sleep. When you do take those things, your sleep mm. architecture is way different when you take medications, even substances like alcohol. Um, so I'm not against it at all by any means. I think some people benefit from it. And I think there's it's worth noting that you can make behavioral changes and see pretty good results. You might not be cured, but you'll be better than you were before. Yeah. yeah. What do you say to people who, and yeah, so many thoughts going through my head yeah, yeah. with that. Um, one, the first thought that comes into my head is really the goal with sleep medication then is to correct a problem temporar- temporarily in order to get off of sleep yeah. medication. It's not a long-term solution where, you know, if somebody has uh, bipolar or ADHD, like they may be using medication for the foreseeable future indefinitely to manage those things. With sleep, that really shouldn't be the goal then. Am I, am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think it depends on the person's goals, right? If a client comes to me and says, Hey, I'm having issues with my sleep. I'm so frustrated that I'm, that I'm dependent on this medication. I really mm. want to make changes. Um, there are people out there that take, you know, uh, certain medications for sleep and they don't really care, which is totally fine. No big deal. You know, if it's not an issue for you, then it's not an issue. A lot okay. of people do report that there are side effects that they don't like when it comes to medication. So a lot of times I like to explore that in therapy. Hey, what does it mean to you to take sleep medication? You know, what does it mean to you to take this medication every night or every other night to initiate or maintain sleep? Because some people find that when they take it at certain times or they take it too late, oh gosh, now their next day is completely screwed, right? Because they're exhausted and mm-hmm. the hangover effect and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, so that was that was my first thought is like, okay, so the the sort of mode of operation around sleep medication is a little bit different than some other like emotional medications or psychotropic medications. But then secondly, I can't tell you how many times I've had a client come into my office and say, Oh, I just smoke marijuana for sleep and it helps. Right. What how does that affect your sleep architecture? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of research out there about cannabis and how it helps with certain mental health issues. Um, I'm still really doing a deep dive into the research, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, You know, I think about it this way. Um, You know, again, I'm not a prescriber by any means, but if somebody is saying, hey, you know, I am using this, you know, either right before sleep or I'm using it a couple hours just to relax before sleep, it really is about the function of what that does for you, right? If that's helping, and it's creating less anxiety and you're able to function and you're not abusing it, of course, and like all those other things that we look for, then we really have to look at, you know, uh, what's, what's, um, what's it helping with and what's it not helping with, you know, mm. I think if people have a goal of being in life raw, right? Like not taking medications and really trying to just like shell up and really try to make all the changes without medication, then yeah, we do notice that, uh, cannabis substances like alcohol, they do kind of alter things in a way. Because if you think about it, your body um, is trying really hard to maintain its circadian rhythm. And if you're introducing something else, even if it's exogenous melatonin or cannabis, you know, things like that, we're really trying to fast track those things. And then our body doesn't really know how to respond in a natural way. So you're, okay. you might end up not relying on those medications or anything like that, but maybe you get into a habitual experience of, oh, I need this to go to sleep. Um, it might be psychosomatic at that point. Yeah. And that's something I was thinking about as well. How much of this stuff, well, you really can't really tell, but yeah. um, 
there is a component of this, right? Where it is behavioral, you know, Pavlov's yeah. dog kind of thing. Yeah. I pop the melatonin, I'm going to be sleepy now. And so like, well, is the melatonin really helping? I don't know, but you believe it's helping. So it's helping. It's a little placebo effect. And so even with some of these other medications that are a little bit heavier and prescribed, there can be some of that as well, where maybe the person could get off of it, but now their body's normalized to it. And there's a behavioral component as well. It gets a little messy, doesn't it? It does. It, you know, I think, I think one of your videos recently, you really hit the nail on the head with melatonin. It really, um, for example, just using melatonin, it's, yeah. it, it doesn't really put people to sleep. As far as I know, it's really like an indicator that allows the body to start the orchestrated process of getting ready to, you know, go to sleep or yeah. getting ready to get in the process of going. I mean, it's not like a direct catalyst. It, it helps, but um, I, it's my understanding too, that, you know, if you take too much, then your body simply excretes it. So I don't even know if the amount that you take is is enough in certain, in certain ways. And um, if you're taking more, it doesn't necessarily lead to better sleep. Um, right. Well, yeah. there's a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of research about taking too much melatonin gives you nightmares too. You know, it can cause that's a change. What, that's what I meant to ask you about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it can cause a change in that sleep architecture. I just call mm -hmm. it, you know, the cycles of yeah. sleep, you know, your sleep pattern. Um, and it can cause you, it can cause you to have some overactivity in certain areas of your brain that are responsible for dreaming. And that can lead to nightmares or very yeah. intense dreaming uh, when you're trying to sleep. And that's not conducive for a good sleep hygiene, you know, being awake and ready to go the next day, it can be kind of problematic. And oh my gosh, the response I got on that video was huge because so many people overuse melatonin and then have yeah. these nightmares from it. Um, and, and like you said just a second ago, I think people believe that melatonin is going to help them sleep. It doesn't help you sleep. It's great for jet lag. It's great for sort of realigning your circadian rhythm. Uh, it's not actually improving sleep quality. It's like the referee at the starting line that fires the gun into the air and says, it's time to go to bed. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's not actually helping you sleep. It's just making you, okay, now is the time to sleep. So if you've got like one of those rhythms where you don't get tired until 3 a.m., melatonin is going to be great for you, but only take the amount that your doctor is telling you, the amount that is right for you because you take too much. And it's not going to necessarily hurt you, right? Talk to your doctor, right. of course, but uh, you might not have the kind of sleep that you're hoping for. Yeah. You, you know, something that I always wondered about with melatonin, and I, I still don't know if I have a full answer on this, but, you know, when I think about exogenous melatonin and I think about sleep architecture, um, I think about REM sleep a lot. And I wonder if, mm. you know, if you're not getting into deep stages of sleep for some reason and you're staying in REM, I'm pretty sure REM is the, you know, the sleep stage where we have a tendency to remember our dreams. And I'm wondering if that's when we have a tendency to have nightmares. Like, you know, I'm not sure, but I just wonder about that. Yeah. So there's a few, there's a few cycles to it. Um, and I'm going to hold on to that thought for a minute because you use this term and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm pretending that I know what it is, but I don't know what it is. You said exogenous melatonin. What the heck is that? Right. 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 Like <laughs> the difference so, is that like super powered melatonin. <laughs> <laughs> I think of it so in the research, uh, they denote that as, you know, taking a substance like that's already in your body that's already produced normally, but you're taking um, a supplementary um, amount of it. That's, you know, you're, you're taking another oh. pill for it. Oh, right. Okay. So, 
Yeah, that's so funny. It does sound pretty extravagant, right? Um, but yeah, what I, is your I, current dosage of exogenous melatonin? Exogenous mel- <laughs> right, right. Like <laughs> I think about like, exogenous like ketones, like people who are on the ketogenic diet or something. Like you already have some of that in you, right? But you're taking yeah. these exogenous ketones to um, really promote like being into ketosis or something. That so. makes sense. If you think about it, sorry, we're, this is total sidebar. If you oh, think about right. it, that makes sense. X meaning from the Latin out, Genesis meaning beginning. So beginning outside of yourself, exogenous. That makes sense. If I had thought about it, I would have got it. But I, now that you say it, I'm connecting one and two. Okay, back to dreams. (laughs) Back to dreams. Um, I I agree. So there's there's a few there's a few cycles. Um, well, and you know a lot more about these cycles than I do, but there's a few cycles that I identify as a dream interpreter, someone who uses dream interpretation heavily in my psychotherapy. <clears throat> there's three phases. There's uh, light NREM, which just means not REM. Mm-hmm. There's REM, and then there's deep NREM. Uh, they all have their very specific purposes. Um, the two that I, I like to focus on are deep NREM and REM. REM sleep connects just the most outrageous and disparate things in your mind. So it will connect your feelings about your breakfast with your stress at work. And it's just putting all these different uh, experiences and thoughts and emotions together. It's connecting pieces of the brain. It's forming neural pathways. Love that. Deep NREM sleep is not forming new pathways, but it's deepening and uh, coding and solidifying those pathways that were created by REM sleep. So they go hand in hand. REM is going to make you more creative. It's going to help you when you wake up and you've had good REM sleep, you're going to have great ideas. You're going to be very creative. It's going to be very helpful for you. Deep NREM is what's going to help you remember. It's going to be the part of your sleep that helps you use and really encode the information that you absorbed the previous day. So both of those are crazy important. What happens with melatonin is the dreaming part of our brain uh, is REM sleep. And so, well, when you take melatonin or too much melatonin, there's parts of your brain that are overactive still. They didn't calm down the way that they were supposed to. Um, And so, well, your REM sleep dreams are going to be a little bit exaggerated. Right, right. A little troublesome. So, um, What's interesting about REM sleep, though, is because it's connecting different parts of our brain uh, through exploring the memory of our dreams, we can come up with some pretty cool stuff that just fuels psychotherapy and yeah. helps us become aware of things that we may not might not have been aware of before, because that's literally what that part of sleep does. I think that's amazing, too, because I, I thought about when you said encoding, right? I think about um, how we take things from our present environment, right? And like you mentioned, like how it all connects and if it is connected, right? I mean, there are some things that who knows if it's connected or not. I'm thinking of like, the only way that I think, I think about this in, in a way of like the amygdala is the part of the brain that connects emotion and memory. So I, I always wonder like, what's the part of the brain that connects uh, our living life with our dreaming life, right? And I think you really hit on it in, in different uh, stages of REM, you know? Um, I wonder too, I know that part of active dreaming is, you know, memory consolidation and really memory folding and really trying to, you know, like you said, create new neural pathways in a way. And I always wonder sometimes if dreams could be helpful or unhelpful in that. Um, I think my, my opinion, right. This is just my opinion because I work with dreams is that it is always helpful. (laughs) Here's why I say always helpful. And I take such a strong stance on it. Um, The reason that uh, dreaming can be unhelpful is the same 
but it's a misinterpretation, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, in the same reason that someone might say uh, kidney stone pains are unhelpful. Um, sure, you could say they're unhelpful, but they're trying to let you know that there's a problem with your fluid intake. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're having too much sodium. You're you're not drinking enough water. Something. So, sure, you could say that the pains from kidney stones are unhelpful. I had kidney stones, by the way. They're miserable. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) but it let me know, Hey, Buster, drink more water. (laughs) Right. It's like you said, it's like data, you know, it's information. Right. Right. And so nightmares in particular, uh, there's, there's both of those pieces taking place. So it lets us know that there is unfinished trauma that we need to work through. There may be some PTSD things that you need to talk to your Mm -hmm. therapist about. But what I also see all the time is people being way too analytical and too direct about their dreams. They have a violent dream and they're like, oh my gosh, I am a sociopath. I have antisocial personality disorder. I thought about murdering my grandma. Well, that's a symbol. You have to interpret that symbol in the same way if... um, It's like like little kids. You know, when little kids experience something, they take everything literally, right? Right. So they're easy to fool. Well, we're the kind of same way with our dreams. If you Mm -hmm. don't do the work of meeting with a therapist who is informed about dreams and interpreting them, you'll take everything literally and you'll be so confused. But when I get the opportunity to interpret people's dreams, um, they get the insight and they're like, oh, I don't have to be so worried about this. It relieves the pressure. Yeah. I, I always wonder if it would create more anxiety, but I really like your sentiment and your, and your thought process on, you know, appreciating the symbols and potentially the patterns, you know, that dreams provide us. Cause I, th- I do think it helps, especially with PTSD. I mean, nightmares is one big thing that we focus on. So. Yeah. Yeah. Huge, huge. huge. Yeah. So people ask me a lot too about, and I, I want your opinion on this one. Um, people ask me a lot about sleep hygiene. And like, what are the things that people should be doing? What uh, most people, when I use that term, they're like, sleep hygiene was like brushing your teeth before you go to bed. I'm like, no, <laughs> right. there's a little more to it. Yeah. Uh, what is sleep hygiene and what are the things that people need to be looking out for that they're probably doing wrong? Yeah, that's such a good question. I love, I get so excited when people ask me this. So <laughs> sleep hygiene really is taking care of your sleep um, and taking care of that pulse of your, that part of your life. I mean, I think sleep as part of our life pie, if we're not focusing on that piece of the pie, I mean, we're missing something. So sleep hygiene really is trying to maintain a solid routine when it comes to sleep and maintain really good habits. What I mean by that is the couple of things that we focus on really is, you know, what are you doing right before bed? What are you doing right upon waking? You know, what are you actually doing as it relates to sleep and it relates to arousal, meaning the anxiety that you're experiencing relating to sleep? So when I think of the th- big uh, the three pillars of sleep, you know, uh, circadian rhythm, sleep drive, and arousal or anxiety, anxiety is usually the one that we focus on the most because okay. if you are able to nail down, you know, waking up at the same time every day, which helps with circadian rhythm, and you're able to, you know, really be exhausted by the end of the day, which is sleep drive, the body's biological need for sleep. Okay. Arousal okay. Really will be the th- yeah. Arousal will be the thing that will keep you up, survival mechanism. Mm. So um, one thing that, you know, I really, really hone in on is the hour before you go to sleep is crucial. So if you're scrolling through TikTok, I am very guilty of this, right? So <laughs> scrolling through TikTok, also, yeah, yes. guilty of charge. Uh, you know, any sort of electronics, anything that promotes thinking and worrying and, you know, obsessing over things, um, that's not good, right? So we want to really either reduce those experiences or um, if people are really struggling with that, I always say, hey, 
pick a couple of uh, people to follow or accounts to follow and only focus on those right before sleep. It's not part of this traditional protocol, but if you are on your phone, really just focus on certain hashtags. Um, and then, mm. you know, uh, certain... I like that compromise. That's nice. I think, yeah. I think I can, I can deal with that. Like, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. if I can't get your phone out of your hand before bed, uh, I'll settle, but <laughs> just, just pick get. a couple safe hashtags. Yeah. Where you don't, don't get, you know, inflamed by the political climate yeah. <laughs> right before you're trying to go to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because if you think about the traditional cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia protocol, it's it's tough. It's tough for some people, including myself. I'll admit that. I mean, it's really tough to not have electronics right before bed. It's tough to not drink caffeine afternoon. It's tough to, you know, limit. Afternoon? Uh, I don't. I can't drink I caffeine afternoon. That's brutal. Coffee? So <laughs> coffee is, oh. I know. So coffee. Oh my God. I could get so nerdy about this, but um, <laughs> please, the, this is what we're here for. <laughs> I really can. So like really caffeine has a half-life depending on your biology of like six to 10 hours. Right. So after you drink that initial sip, that caffeine is still in your system, half of it in six hours. Right. So if you think about the full scope of how long that caffeine is in your system, it might really inhibit sleep um, or it will inhibit sleep architecture. So. Uh, yeah. I do like I do like an afternoon coffee, but I should probably stop that. Huh? You know, I'm actually drinking coffee right now. So <gasps> no, Kristen. Well, I know it's not okay. It's not okay. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. Coffee stays in the body way longer than we think. And yeah. and there's this crazy. I get this as a hypnotherapist, as a dream interpreter. You get it as a therapist. People do not know themselves. Right. <laughs> it's it's like your friend who's at the party and they're like, "Don't worry, I'm fine to drive home. I'm totally okay." They're right. not. You take their keys away. It's the same thing (laughs) with people. They're like, oh yeah, I sleep fine. No, you probably don't know how bad your sleep is. And no, you you know, oh yeah, coffee doesn't affect me that late at night. No, you probably just are unaware of your body. And I am super guilty of this. I am not the kind of person who's very aware of my body. Sometimes, very rarely, I'll get a massage and they're like, where does it hurt? I'm like, I don't know. I don't feel myself. (laughs) Just start pressing on things. I'll say, ow. Right, uh, right. You you allude to a really good point though, because I think that we think that we're really good historians, right? And most of us, yeah. for the major things in our life, you know, we could recall episodic memories pretty well, right? Depending on if you have like any, of course, like you know, anything going on in terms of trauma. But when it comes to sleep, I mean, when when I look at somebody's sleep diary, um, the first time they'll be like, "Yeah, I, this really actually made me think about my sleep and like my sleep efficiency mm. score is not where I want it to be." And it's like. Yeah, because you're actually writing it down and you have to like actually have to think about it now, right? If you just try to think about the whole past week of your sleep and when you woke up, you probably take a couple of guesses, but you're probably off. You know, you're probably, probably off. It's it's no fault of our own. We're just really bad at guessing. <laughs> so mm. taking data helps. True. Speaking of speaking of data, you know, I've got one of these smart watches, right? And they're supposed to track oh. your sleep. <laughs> Are, uh, is that does that actually work? I've always you know, wondered. You know, so I have, I feel like my opinion on this fluctuates with time, but my, my idea of getting a really good idea of even, so I think about it two ways. If you're looking for your, uh, you know, your time in bed window, which is the time that you fall asleep and the time that you wake up, sometimes these devices are helpful. Um, you know, they, Uh they go on motion and they go on heart rate. Um, so some of them, you know, are, are good with that. 
when you're looking at sleep architecture and you're looking at getting into deeper stages of sleep, REM, all of that, I mean, we really have to take in tune with temperature. And I think that's the one thing that a lot of these miss is mm. um, when you're hooked up to a polysomnography, meaning a sleep study, they really take not only your heart rate, you know, breathing patterns, they also take your temperature because your temperature decreases in certain stages of sleep. This sure. is why we need it to be really cold in our room at times to fall asleep. So, I mean, I think that's one crucial thing that I miss, um, but I, I think about the overall benefit and it's like, if it's getting you to a point where you're sleeping better and you're, you're feeling better about your sleep, great. Accuracy, I'm still trying to research into that. So. Okay. That's always made me wonder. Cause I, you know, I'll look at it when I wake up and it'll always tell me I get like 10 minutes of deep sleep. Like, yeah. Ah. Mm-hmm. Every, every time, every time. And I'll like, I'll sleep a bunch. I'll sleep a little, right? It's always telling me I, I get like no deep sleep. And I'm like, can that really be true? And I'm you know, like, I, I don't. I wonder about that so much. How you know, can it know? I, How does it know? I, I know. I, I don't I don't really know. And I think, you know, when I look at all the research out there on like, how do we determine if somebody has like sleep apnea or if somebody has like certain sleep disorders? I mean, when you're hooked up to a, a sleep study, I mean, you really get good data, you know? Yeah. You really get brain waves, yeah. everything. Um, I don't think this is doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's, no. it's, I think it's good for tracking purposes, right? Like, hey, am I getting to sleep? Am I getting in bed at the right time? Am I waking up around the right time? Great. To make yourself you know? aware. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. All right. I get it. So, so right take, it with, take it with a grain of salt, right? But okay. Yeah. Maybe it's not the most accurate thing. Right. It's great for checking your text messages covertly. Totally. Right. <laughs> I'm telling you, you got to breathe, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yells at me every hour to stand up. I'm like, yes. yeah. why? No, nobody. Absolutely <laughs> nobody. Oh man. So uh, curiosity question. Um, how much of your practice is dedicated to sleep? You've done a lot of stuff about sleep. Clearly, you're very informed about these things. Is that the focus of your practice or does that just happen to be what you fell into on the internet? You know, it was. Um, when I did, you know, when I did my um, my training, so I, I fell into this whole sleep realm by accident, really. So I say that about a lot of things in my life now that I think about it. But um, when I was um, on my mm, clinical internship- A running theme, got, huh? Yeah, right. A theme. <laughs> I wonder what my dreams look like. But anyway, so- I, I really, um, I had to do a lot of required rotations for my clinical internship to get my PsyD. And one of them was running the sleep course, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia course. My supervisor oh. ever listens to this. It's not personal, but I was dreading this. I was like, this is going to be boring. I'm not going to like this. It's going to suck. People are just going <laughs> to fall asleep. Like, what's the point? And I ended up falling in love because what happened was I saw people get better so quick. And I, the research was really, I'm really big into science and research and what works, right? So I was really compelled by all the randomized clinical trials they had on cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So I'm like, okay, after my doctoral studies, I did a postdoctoral fellowship um, and I focused mostly on health psychology and sleep. Hmm. And I opened up a private practice and I, a lot of people just reached out to me for sleep. So I was like, great, I'll just focus on CBTI. It's easy. Um, and then as my practice grew, um, you know, people were just hitting me up for all different things. So about 20% of my practice now is insomnia usually when people have insomnia, sometimes they have comorbid issues like anxiety or trauma. So mm, that makes focus sense. on a little bit of both. Yeah. So it, it varies, but in the beginning it was a lot more, it was like 50, 50, um, 50 sleep and then 50 like anxiety, gender, sexuality concerns, all that. Um, cool. so I, I totally identify with that. I did a lot of work with children with autism and with children in general. And so that yeah. comprised, a, it's not my specialty, but right. comprised a lot of what I did. It's what people knew me for. So now it's much less, but I get what yeah. you're saying. That makes sense. It's how a lot of people kind of stumble into it. Yeah. And I mean, it's um, fun and I, it's definitely, um, it's informed my practice way more than I ever thought. That's why I always tell people when they're yeah. in their 
clinical rotations, I mean, you don't know when you'll need this, you know, like just, just, just work through it. You know, you might hate it. You might not agree with it. It's okay to hate it the whole time, but you might take something from that training that you don't even realize will help you in the future. Mm. So. Mm. Very true. Very true. Yeah. So uh, another topic that's on my mind is uh, PTSD stuff and sleep. Do you do you do work with that? Do you kind of help people through some of those things? Yeah. So um, a lot of times when people come to me, they're Tough coming one. to me for trauma and they're saying, I can't sleep because of nightmares or I can't sleep because, you know, ever since this incident happened to me, sleeping doesn't feel safe um, or my sleep has just been jacked up ever since. Yeah. So even if we do, um, just say we start with a cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia protocol, I always tell them, Trauma is going to come up, even if you want to avoid it. Avoidance is the thing that keeps trauma alive. So we're going to have to get there somewhere, you know, mm. at some time. But um, a lot of times uh, insomnia treatment will work for someone with PTSD. It just takes a little longer to see some results um, because they are having those nightmares and they are having those dreams that are really, really stressful. So, yeah. Um, yeah so I always say, you know, if you're able to, you know, I don't specialize in dream work, you know, so this is out of my scope. But I always say, you know, hey, if you're able to kind of really take a deep dive into your dreams and find symbols or patterns. Great. You know, it's not something that I'm good at. Um, but if you could do anything like that, by all means, I think that's helpful, you know, so. Mm, mm. What do you recommend for people? Like, I mean, there's the, the CBTI, right? But mm -hmm. with, with PTSD specifically, is there a different regimen? Is there a different sort of mode of attack for those type of sleep problems with the nightmares and the flashbacks and all that stuff? Um, cause I, I get that one a lot and whether that's yeah. like, I think a lot of people think PTSD, they immediately think military, but right. people PTSD, that can be sexual trauma, physical trauma. That can yeah. be a car accident that you experienced. It can be a mm -hmm. lot of things and it yeah. really affects sleep is, is the mode of treatment different? Good question. I think, I think it is. And I think it depends on the person, right? But when we think about, um, when we think about PTSD, we think about, um, avoidance and we think of, you know, triggers, right? So how mm, do we decrease yes. avoidance and how do we decrease the propensity to feel emotional when we see triggers, things that remind you of the event, right? A lot of them are nightmares, right? It doesn't have to be military. I'm so happy you brought that up. Um, so a lot of times we focus on cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure or EMDR. Um, I don't specialize in EMDR, but that's a, you know, that's a modality that's out there. Um, but for dreams specifically, there is, um, at the VA, there's this uh, nightmare protocol. So it's it's part of a bigger trauma treatment, but it really just focuses on the nightmares. And okay. you really kind of hone in on what the dreams mean and, and what the nightmares mean to you. And you kind of sit with it. It's kind of like a prolonged exposure experience of the longer you sit with it, the anxiety decreases. And over time, that anxiety hierarchy is a lot lower than it, than it was before even acknowledging it. Yes. That makes a lot of sense to me too, because there's the fight or flight response in your brain. Yeah. Yeah. And what that does is it kind uh, kind of circumvents the logical and executive functioning parts of your brain, the the frontal cortex. So when you're in fight or flight, which is obviously what you'll experience when you're having nightmares, frontal cortex shuts off. And so what I've found very helpful for dream interpretation is, you know, what I'm saying about your dream may matter, may not. Right? You know, I'm I'm kind of, uh, you know, shooting myself in the foot with credibility here, but. <laughs> I, I recommend people, even if somebody doesn't know a lot about dreams, talk about your dreams because by engaging the cognitive critical frontal cortex of your brain, you are helping tune down the fight or flight mm -hmm. amygdala response of your brain because you're reconnecting the parts that are disconnected. And so even, 
even if you don't know what sense your brain is making, just the act of you writing it down and like, you know, kind of messing around with, well, what does this symbol mean? What does that mean? And Googling it just for fun and knowing that it's, you know, don't take it too literally. Just by the fact of you putting that concentrated, focused effort into it and looking for meaning, you're re-engaging, reigniting the other parts of your brain that are going to help reduce the nightmares. And that's the benefit I see. I love that. I love that. That really resonates with me because I think when I see clients who are really struggling, that's essentially what we're doing with trauma treatment, right? I mean, Sitting with you're, it. Really re- you're processing things in a different way and hopefully coming up with an idea about this that's different than what you're originally kind of attaching. Like you said, that amygdala and the um, that response, that fight or flight response. Um, yeah, that's so important. Yeah. Crazy important. Yeah. So, yeah. well, everyone listening, you heard it. PTSD, trauma stuff. The real answer is facing it, right? The reducing the the fight or flight, right? Not running from it and being a, being attentive to, paying attention to your triggers. And it's kind of tough being a therapist on this side of it, I would imagine, because you are asking people to do what they are actively avoiding doing. I don't want to be around that stuff. I don't want to think about that stuff. I want it to just go away. I, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, can you just erase these memories with hypnosis? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. have to do any hypnosis. I know. I know. <laughs> That's not how hypnotherapy works. That's not how trauma works. And I tell them too, I was like, you know, no, uh, I can't erase them. And if I could, neither would I, because right. you have experienced something about being a person about being a human that is incredibly important. It was not good. I'm not happy that it happened to you, but if I were to take that memory away, how would you keep yourself safe from that happening again? How would you be able to help other people? How would you be able to live your life differently and better because Mm -hmm. of that experience? You wouldn't. You'd be in danger. Right. Right. And I mean, like like you alluded to, I mean, I think I I saw a quote on on Twitter um, and it said like, you know, sometimes healing hurts more than the wound. When I think mm. about that when it comes to nightmares, right? Like people are really taking a deep dive into, wow, this happened to me. And, you know, all of this stuff really, really hurts and it sucks. And, you know, when we really reprocess, we really do ourselves a really good service of really looking at the world in a different way because our lens is so different with trauma, you know, like we're hypervigilant about things for all good reasons, you know? Yeah. And I think of it like a fire alarm, right? If it's a faulty fire alarm, you know, you're going to run to the fire every single time, but there's no fire, right? You're not in the same situation that you were in. And yet the fire alarm is still going off because your brain is like, this is dangerous. This is dangerous. Um, But it really gets down to the point of when should I intervene? You know, what trigger is so, so bad to the point where I'm unsafe. And then I need to jump in with trauma, nightmares, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, um, you've got a book out and in the description of your book, I was doing a little bit of research about you. I always research my guests before they come on. In the description of your book, it said, um, it said the short answer, this is a quote, the short answer, focusing on your future expectations rather than reality isn't really living. It's simply dreaming. And I think that connects so deeply with what we're talking about here. You can't... You can't try and live in a reality that isn't the one that you're in. And so if you're trying to live in a reality where bad things don't happen, where times aren't scary, where things aren't anxious, where fight or flight doesn't need to take place, that's not the real world. And one, you're just dreaming and living in a fantasy land that's going to eventually run into problems because you can't live in a pretend world while your body is in the real one. And then two, it's going to make you vulnerable, vulnerable to being hurt because you're the princess in the castle syndrome, you know, you don't know what's out there. 
And so, yeah. So yeah. I, 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 I'm so happy that resonated with you. That's like one of my favorite quotes, part of the book. I, um, I picked it out. I was like, Ooh, yeah, that's good. That's, that's awesome. good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I notice, you know, in my practice, I do notice a lot of times, you know, people aren't giving themselves enough credit, right. With as humans, I mean, it's, it's hard just living. It's hard just surviving. Right. And we're expecting mm. so much of ourselves. We're expecting us, you know, to, you know, have a job, you know, do all these crazy things that society wants us to do and be completely perfect when it comes to mental health and how we operate. And it's completely unrealistic. I mean, and we compare the, these things to people on the internet or people in our real life, right? And, oh, so-and-so is able to operate because they haven't gone through A, B, and C. It's like, we're all different, right? It's just a matter of how we keep moving forward. Because I think when we start to really just be raw with ourselves about what life is, and if we're like really looking at things, not avoiding, really just trying to be here in the moment and really trying to access those things, that's really tough. Yeah. And it's the most authentic living experience you could ever have, right? It's like really just being here and now. It's really, really uncomfortable for most people though. Yeah. It's tough to be here and now. It's yeah. tough to be here and for now. Sure. For sure. It's just, it's the way that human beings' brains are, mm-hmm. are. The yeah. way they are built, the way they're made. You know, we are one of the few animals that can create in our minds a reality that is different from the one that we currently live in. And that's amazing for doing things like building hospitals and, you know, building uh, places that take care of people or being able to imagine rocket ships and then working towards a reality where rocket ships are real. Uh, But when we start to use that power of creating a reality in the future to hide from the reality of the now, we get into some pretty weird psychology and it messes people up. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's the same as like, distraction, right? I mean, if you're oh, avoidance, yeah. distraction, thinking about the future, futurizing, you know, overthinking past situations too. I mean, you're, you're living in the past, right? You're either living mm-hmm. in the past or the future. And I mean, it's, it's difficult. It's so difficult. Well, I think people in, and you, you said this just a second ago, people experience that all the time when they finally stop scrolling on their phone at the end of the day, right before they go to bed, yeah. they then at that moment when they are supposed to be calm and relaxed, realize that they've been distracting for the past 16 hours of the day. Yep. And so they finally put the phone down, they close their eyes and they haven't dealt with anything of their I'm emotions. So happy you brought that up. Yeah. Are you supposed to go to sleep? You're not going to exactly. go to sleep. That's impossible. Exactly. You can't expect that of yourself. And that's why part of part of what I um, suggest for some people, it sounds really counterintuitive, but it's so important to look inward. Uh, it's called scheduled worry time. You'll spend, oh, you know, 15 I to 30 like minutes. I never thought of that. Yeah. Like you'll, you'll schedule 15 to 30 minutes throughout the day at a time, not right before bed, you know, not at all when, you know, even three hours before bed is kind of cutting it close, but You'll spend that time and just worry yourself sick about things, like just really worry yourself sick. So you'll focus on all the things that you worry about. And one of two things will happen. You'll either come up with solutions for these things that you could act on either now or in the future, or there's no solutions at all. And you'll get a note of, you know, is this thinking helpful or is it unhelpful, mm. right? Is this getting mm-hmm. me somewhere or is it not? And then right before bed, you'll remind yourself, hey, I spent 30 minutes thinking about this. There are no viable solutions and I just have to let it go. It's uncomfortable and weird and people don't like doing it and it's hard and it's effortful and starting that cognitive process really helps with sleep. You know, mm. I can hear it in the chat right now. People will be like, oh, but I already do that. I'm like, no, 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 you don't. Yeah. <laughs> you, trust me. I, I've, I've listened to your story. You don't. <laughs> Schedule some time to worry about some things and be 
intentional about it because what'll happen is what people will probably say, and I can hear it already. They'll send me emails saying, I already, I already have scheduled worry time. It happens all throughout the day. Then that's not scheduled worry time. That is you are distracting so much that there is this overflow of worry that you haven't dealt with. Put your phone down, open up a blank sheet of paper, get a pen, write it down, let it just flow through you. Right. If you're being worried and stressed all throughout the day, that means that you haven't spent any time actually critically and honestly looking at your stressors and they are overflowing. It is so much that you can't distract yourself anymore. You've hid from it far too long. Yeah. So let me just nip that one there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and I think you hit on a lot of good points because I get the same rebuttal in my practice, right? Of it's really making me more anxious. I mean, as it should, right? You're thinking about all the things that you worry about over time. Again, the more that we allow this, yeah, the more it becomes less anxiety provoking. And like you said, if you're intentional and you're challenging these thoughts and you're really trying to, you know, really, you know, shape these things, it's helpful. And the thing is you have control over this, over this. If you schedule 15 to 30 minutes, that's controlled worry time, right? This is time Mm. you can control. And the whole key is anytime you start worrying, you know, you really remind yourself of that 30 minutes and then you'll notice, yeah, I'm only worrying only. I mean, I'm worrying 30 minutes or an hour a day. Whereas before I was worrying all day, like it was in the back of my mind all day long and I couldn't get a hold of it. And now you have more control and it's less time, you know, over, over course of your life. What a great coping technique. I love that. I I I personally do it every day. Yeah. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, there's, there's your nugget of truth for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to Dr. Casey for it. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I I know we're we're kind of running out of time here. We've talked about a whole bunch of stuff. Uh like I mentioned before, you just wrote a new book was released this year in January. Uh go check it out. It's called Life Lessons to Master Before You Die: Practical Ways to Achieve an Authentic Living Experience. Uh and there's a whole bunch of stuff. We I think we touched on a few things that are actually in the book. A lot of things actually. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've enjoyed today, you'll like that too. So Dr. Casey, thank you so much for being here. Is there um, anything to shout out before before we kind of sign off here today? I mean, they can find you on the internet and most platforms, you're Dr. Kristen Casey, uh, but anything else? Yeah, no, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. And I, uh, I've followed your TikTok for so long. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just so thrilled to be here. I don't even think you realize it. So Um, so yeah, I'm, you know, I'm Dr. Kristen Casey on most platforms. Um, and, and yeah, feel free to follow, like subscribe, whatever. Um, but thank you so much for having me on. It's really been a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you. Oh man. Same, same for me. Same for me until next time. Thank you all for being here.